Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we we can thank you for so many different things, but we especially thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not just words on a page, but that they they are living and active, that they become a part of us and go to work on our heart. Lord, we thank you for the Spirit who breathed these words out through the writers, that we may have the depths, the richness of your grace and your wisdom revealed to us in these very words. Lord, we thank you for what they tell us. They tell us that you are almighty and omnipotent. They tell us that you love us and that you have mercy on us and that you want to be restored to us. We thank you that that these words tell us that you provided a way for us to do that by coming to earth yourself dying the death on the cross, rising again three days later, so that we may have that. Lord, we thank you for all of this and so much more. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I distinctly remember back when I was in sixth grade, my complete and utter frustration with basic algebra. Anybody else have that problem? Okay, so I'm not alone. All right. It was the very first time I had heard about these things called formulas, with parentheses and things missing out of them, where really weird things happened, like letters all of a sudden represented numbers, and you had to balance the equation on either side of the equal sign, etc., etc. I was used to this plus this equals this, this divided by this equals this. All I had known before was addition, subtraction, multiplication, and long division. Even the concept, that may seem like an archaic term, long division. Even the concept of long division probably dates me with members from Generation Z. That's a thing, Generation Z. So when my poor math teacher, who was a new teacher, had to teach us sixth graders this completely new concept to any of us, I'm sure he did not know what he was getting into. I just could not, for the life of me, get this new concept. The teacher kept using this one phrase, something about simply plugging numbers into where the letters were. But I just didn't get it. Where did those numbers come from? Why was I supposed to determine why a certain letter was actually a number? Maybe I'm just a little more dense when it comes to math, but my 11 to 12-year-old brain just could not wrap my head around it. The teacher just using this one phrase over and over again did not clear things up for me. I don't remember what, how, or when it happened, but finally something clicked in my brain and it finally started to make sense to me. A tad bit. But when we talk about spiritual revelation, there are some who, because of God's will, will never be able to understand revelation from the Holy Spirit, both personal and through the Word of God. Paul also plays on what we talked about last week with references to spiritual searching. Last week we talked about how Paul emphasizes that the Holy Spirit has the kind of thorough, full, and completely accurate knowledge and understanding about the depths of the wisdom of God's will, the kind of knowledge that would normally be concluded through a long, arduous process for us as humans. 
In today's reference, Paul talks about the believer's application of the Holy Spirit's revelation and who is the only one who can investigate and judge them. So the first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the plan. Now we're going to be finishing out chapter 2 this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, just look in the table of contents. There's no shame in that or ask somebody next to you. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, there should be one located in the pew in front of you should be hearing plenty of pages flipping right now. I want all of us to see this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to be at the very end of it, starting in verse 14. And we read this, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Here Paul first contrasts what he describes as the natural man with believers in Jesus. The word translated here as natural is as descriptive as possible about humanity without God. That's as descriptive as possible as Paul could get about humanity without God. It's meant to convey the extent of human wisdom in an ironic way. In the recent past, we've talked about how Paul has described in the first part of this letter that God purposely designed the way to him and the revelation of himself and his will to be impossible to discover through pure human exploration and discovery. This extends through the realms of philosophy and art and science. We've talked about how on their own, even the most brilliant minds that have ever existed cannot come to this knowledge of God on their own. Therefore, it only makes sense, if you think about it, that the most brilliant minds on earth are atheists because that's simply the result of the height of human wisdom. Paul talks earlier on in this letter about how God took everything the world holds to be worth anything, human intelligence and reasoning, societal status and functionality, and turned it all on its head. He took what doesn't make any sense to even the most smartest and most moral humans and made it front and center. That is, the gospel was established by someone who was both fully God and fully man, but was despised by the world, so much so that he was executed in the lowest societal way possible in those days. That good news was opened up to everyone, regardless of what the world holds dear, and especially to those kicked aside by the world. And lastly, like we talked about last week, the main agent to divulge this information to humans was considered to be inactive at that point and not doing anything anymore. And who was that? The Holy Spirit. So one person was paying attention last week. Okay. We talked last week how the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, knows the depths of the will of God so intimately and so accurately and reveals those truths to us by literally indwelling us. He opens up our spiritual eyes to what he breathed out through the Bible writers and sometimes stirs within us to lead us to do something we wouldn't naturally come up with on our own. But now in our passage this morning... Paul turns back to the natural man, the one who is the epitome of human wisdom, intelligence, and societal functionality. And what conclusion does Paul draw in verse 14? That even the greatest person in the world does not accept 
or receive the things of the Holy Spirit. Why is that? He thinks they're foolish, which only makes perfect sense since he cannot discover them on his own and therefore they make no sense to him. And why is that? Well, verse 14 tells us it's because he simply cannot get them. He simply cannot understand them. He simply cannot wrap his head around them. He is bound by his own level of intelligence and therefore realm of understanding. That's the extent of his understanding. The extent of human intelligence still can only work within the realm of the five senses. Smell, touch, taste, sight, and hearing. Still can only operate within that realm. It cannot go beyond that. In experience. The extent of human morality is still subject to human definition, which then what? Changes with the culture, doesn't it? Inherent within that changing morality is a subjection to human desire. Just look at the manipulation of what life is according to human desire to be able to control decisions based on that definition. Jude describes the extent of human morality and intelligence, that is the natural man, in this way. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. That's all they can function with, by. That's all they can operate by. The first part pretty, sum, pretty much sums up perfectly what Paul has been describing so far in 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? Reviling or denouncing or berating the things which they do not understand. The morality and height of intelligence that comes from simply being human or by human instinct only goes about as far as what an animal comes up with, with animal limitation. Not only that, but the end result of even the highest degree of that is what? Destruction. Even the highest degree of that is nothing more than destruction. For those of you involved with the men's and ladies' Monday night Bible studies, you've seen that Paul begins the book of Romans this exact same way. The Apostle James, who most likely wrote the first recorded book we have in the New Testament, wrote this about the so-called wisdom of the natural man. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, there's that word again, natural, and not only that, but demonic, straight up demonic. In fact, James even uses the same word there for natural as Paul uses in the first verse of our passage this morning. Same exact word. But James even goes so far as to equate the extent of human wisdom as what? Demonic. That's the extent of human wisdom. We've been going back to the Tower of Babel a lot lately. What was the result of the extent of human wisdom? For humans to band together, turn their back on the all-powerful one who pretty recently just flooded the whole earth and destroyed everyone, save for their ancestors. And not only that, what did they do? They spit in God's face by building a pagan ziggurat and declaring that they didn't need God anymore. That's the extent of human wisdom. Where do you think that wisdom came from? Yes, it was human, 
But no doubt there was some demonic origination from the one who sought to destroy any faith in the one true God. Wipe it completely off the face of the earth. In reality, the Bible teaches that every single human is doomed to only operate within the realm of natural wisdom, bound by the limitations of humanity and condemned by the sin of humanity, even every single person sitting here. All of us were doomed to that. But God chose the despised and forgotten to offer us hope. That is our only hope. To have our spiritual eyes open for us by way of the Holy Spirit in order to enable us to put our eternal trust in the salvific power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Without that, without that spiritual opening of our eyes, there is simply no understanding. There will always be this wall that will block any eternal wisdom from getting through. And so what's left in natural wisdom? Seeing the eternal wisdom as nothing more than foolishness and therefore having only criticism for God's word at every turn. That's the only result that can be left. As Jude said, a vilification and criticism of that eternal wisdom. One biblical scholar described it this way, and I quote, Like a deaf critic of Bach or a blind critic of Raphael is the unregenerate critic of God's word. We can speak up for the truth where it's needed, but know this, you will never be able to convince a critic of the Bible through human logic and reasoning of the truth of God's word. That critic will always find something new to criticize. The only way that critic's mind will be changed will be for the Holy Spirit to do the convincing in their innermost being. God may very well use the words that you share with that person, but don't be frustrated if your critical friend won't listen to a word you say. That's up to God's convincing, not yours. That's the limitation and destruction of the natural man, of the extent of human and worldly wisdom. Now, Paul contrasts the blessings associated with the spiritual man or woman, or the one who has been saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus, who has had his or her eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, who has entrusted his or her eternity to God's grace in Jesus, and who the Spirit is actively revealing deep spiritual truths to. So that's what brings us to our second point. We talked about the plan. We talk, now we're talking about the process. Verses 15 through 16. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What does Paul mean by his use of the word translated here as appraised or judged? Remember how I said at the beginning of this message that Paul plays on, this, on his reference in the passage before. This is it right here. The Holy Spirit is the only one who knows the depths of the Father's will as thoroughly and accurately as one who goes through an in-depth investigation, research project, or doctoral thesis. That's the perfection of his understanding of it. The word for appraised or judged is the process by which someone would come to the same level of knowledge and understanding. The word used for searched in connection with the Holy Spirit and knowing the will of God in the preceding verse 10 is the level of end result. 
The word used for appraised is the process by which one gets to a result. You see the difference there? So in other words, the one who already knows the depths of the wisdom of God actively empowers and teaches the believer in Jesus through a transformation process to learn and apply those truths of God's wisdom to, for their lives. That's what the first part of, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. An appraiser, whether it be art, real estate, or jewelry, uh, doing the appraising, does what? What do they do? Through a process, determines the value of an item, right? It's the same concept here. As believers, we're able to determine the value of spiritual truths and their value and application to our lives through the process of transformation being accomplished in us by the Holy Spirit. That's the difference between us and the natural man. We can get as much biblical teaching and theology as we possibly can handle, but it's the Spirit who actually make those truths alive in us. At the same time, because of the Holy Spirit indwelling us as believers, no one else can appraise or determine the value of us. Because of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, no one else can appraise or determine the value of us. Since a natural person or unbeliever simply cannot understand things connected to the Spirit, they simply cannot understand we who have the Spirit indwelling us. This is obvious when interacting with unbelievers. They don't get why we would do this to ourselves. They don't understand why we would commit our lives to a guy who was crucified 2,000 years ago, and that was that. They don't understand why we would obey and follow a book that was also written 2,000 years ago as the basis for our lives in the 21st century. They don't understand why we just don't agree with everyone else about cultural and social views. Why don't you just agree with us? There will always be a character on TV that is a mocking caricature of a biblical believer. There will always be that. That will never change. A biblical worldview, whether among our personal relationships or in the media, will always be made fun of. It will always be ripped out of context. It will always be made to look and sound ridiculous or be made out to be nothing but judginess and hypocriticalness. That's the way it will always be. And that's only the lighter side of things. We will always be persecuted around the world, beaten, robbed, have our homes burned down, have our children taken away from us, be chased down, have our property confiscated, be thrown in prison, and be brutally murdered and executed. That's the end result of the very definition of Jude's observation of those who simply do not understand the truth of God's word. A reviling, critical, vilifying, and abusive view of God's word. We are not to be surprised by that. The Apostle James said that outright. Don't be surprised by these trials that you're going through. Don't be surprised about it. However, Paul says here in verse 15 that we can, no matter what happens to us, on this earth and in this life, we cannot be judged or condemned or have our value determined by any one person. The only one who can judge us has already 
declared us blameless in his sight through the righteousness of Jesus. The only one who can affix a value to us has already given up his son to die for us and through that has adopted us as his beloved children and is pouring out the riches of his grace upon us. What anyone else thinks about us or our faith does not matter at all. Instead, what we have is this. We talked about the plan, we talked about the process, now we talk about the prize. This is what we have. Verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Those who live according to the extent of human wisdom, that's all they have. That's all they have. The logical result is atheism because that's the height of human or natural wisdom. A little over a month ago, we looked at some quotes from famous atheists about the meaning of life. Their conclusion? There isn't any. How do they cope with the difficult and painful questions of life? Just try not to think about them. Their ultimate purpose? To try to squeeze out as much enjoyment out of their existence. And we talked about this then, and I bring it up again. How superficial does that sound? It's superficial. It's a, it's a superficial and shallow worldview that's wrapped in a seemingly deep, wise, and intelligent skin. And that's the height of human intelligence, philosophy, and wisdom. It's a fraud. There's nothing actually there. And that's it. That's all they have. That's all they can have. What do we as believers in Jesus have? Rather, who do we have as believers in Jesus have? God. Almighty God. More specifically, in connection with what Paul just wrote in the preceding verses, we have the agent who thoroughly and accurately knows and understands the depths of the will and wisdom of God, the Holy Spirit. That's what we have. And we have this one literally indwelling us, revealing and teaching us these truths and never leaving us. As Paul references from Isaiah, not one created being can ever fully understand the mind, ways, reasons, and plan of God. There will be some things that we will never be able to understand. But what we can understand, God has chosen to reveal through no other way other than himself. The third person of the Trinity. Not only are they being revealed to us through the Spirit, but he is actively applying them to our lives and transforming us through them. And on top of that, the same one is a seal on us, preserving us for God and serving as a down payment on our heavenly home. I'm not making that up. That's straight out of Scripture. He will never leave us, and he will always be there to guide us and comfort us in this life. By the Spirit's indwelling transformation of us, we can have hope of having the mind of Christ, as Paul references in verse 16. And isn't that God's goal for us? To be made more and more into the likeness of Jesus? As pointed out by one biblical scholar, Jesus was the ultimate embodiment of obedience to the Father, out of love for him. 
Jesus obeyed the Father even to the point of death on a perfected instrument of torture and death. Paul points out this exact same thing when he wrote, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does this have to do with us as believers in Jesus, other than being the very basis for our salvation? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now we get to the nitty-gritty. That is having the mind of Christ. A mind of obedience to the one whose wisdom is being revealed to us through the Spirit, out of love for the Son. The revelations of the Holy Spirit, the, the revelations the Holy Spirit is opening up to us is everything we would and could hope to know and understand. The promises of God, the peace of God, the long-suffering of God, the comfort of God, the justice of God, the inheritance of God, the discipline of God, the commandments of God, the glory of God, the plan of God, the preservation by God, the strength of God, the provision of God, the obedience to God, the prophecies by God, the faithfulness of God, the power of God, and the never-ending love of God. Those truly are the riches of God's grace over us in opening our eyes, saving us by His Son, and filling us with His Spirit. I want to direct to worship of our good and perfect Father for all that we spiritually have now. This is all we had before God reached out to us. This is all we had before. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? The enemy of our souls. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, there's that word again, children of wrath, even as the rest. That's all, that's all we had to look forward to. That's all we had. But this is what we have now and forevermore. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what we now have, brothers and sisters, the riches of his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us, the, the contrast between those who can only operate within the limitation of the extent of human wisdom and intelligence and what you have given to us by way of your Son and by way of your Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would never take that for granted. Lord, I pray that we would pour out our worship to you simply because of that simple gift. Lord, we thank you for caring about us and loving us so much 
to do that for us, to give that to us. And Lord, may our worship be made complete by the transformation of your Holy Spirit in our lives, that we may live our lives to glory you all the way up until the point that you come back for us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning.